You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. An evolved dark hotel campaign is underway. A new malware dropper is out and about thanks to the Nikur's botnet. Researchers demonstrate proof-of-concept exploits. Cyber espionage follows trade. Notes on election meddling. Google and Facebook encounter some regulatory and legal headwinds over data collection. And connected cars know a lot about their drivers. And there's money in those data. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, August 20th, 2018. Trend Micro, seconded by Kihu 360, reports that North Korean operators are exploiting a vulnerability in the VB script engine to compromise targets in Pyongyang's Dark Hotel campaign. Dark Hotel is related to Dark Soul and thence to the 2014 Sony Pictures hack which the U.S. FBI unambiguously attributed to attackers working for the North Korean government. Researchers at Proofpoint warn against a new malware strain, Marap, which is being distributed in a large spam campaign run through the Nikor's botnet. They noticed the campaign on August 10th and have been tracking it since. The malicious payload is being distributed in email attachments that include Microsoft Excel web query files, .iqy files, password-protected zip archives that also contain .iqi files, PDFs with embedded .iqi files, and finally, Microsoft Word documents with maliciously crafted macros. Merap is a malware dropper, and it shows some interesting evasive capabilities. It uses API hashing, which isn't uncommon, but which can make it more difficult for analysts and automated tools to determine that the code is in fact malicious. It also runs timing checks at the onset of important functions. These can impede both debugging and sandboxing. If the sleep time Merap detects is too short, the program exits. It will also exit if it determines that it's being run in a virtual machine. The current campaign seems directed largely against the financial sector. Merap, being a dropper, can be used to deliver a wide range of modular payloads to infected targets. One of the more notable payloads Proofpoint has observed is a system fingerprinting module that collects and returns data to the command and control center. Those data include username, domain name, host name, IP address, language, country, Windows version, antivirus software detected, and a list of Microsoft.ost files. Two noteworthy proofs of concept have been reported. Researchers at Sakarma have described a PHP exploit It could be used against a variety of content management systems, including WordPress. And Georgia Tech researchers have demonstrated a new side-channel attack that could extract encryption keys from mobile devices without requiring physical access to the device itself. Again, these are demonstrations, not attacks observed in the wild, 
but the vulnerabilities they exploit will bear watching. Turning to cyber espionage, it appears that being a trading partner with China doesn't put you on any do-not-hack list in Beijing, or Shanghai either, for that matter. In fact, just the opposite seems to be the case. Frequency and intensity of Chinese industrial espionage, in fact, seem to correlate fairly directly with trading relationships. This, at any rate, is the lesson observers are drawing from Recorded Futures report last week on Chinese cyber activity. A great deal of such activity is associated with countries involved in the Belt and Road Initiative, a trade strategy to develop a maritime silk road that would connect Chinese industry with partners in several belts across Eurasia. Malaysia is among the countries reporting that it's seen an uptick in Chinese cyber activity directed against economically relevant targets. Industry seems not to be buying the Australian government's contention that the country's new cybersecurity regulations won't amount to the equivalent of mandatory backdoors. The Digital Industry Group rejects claims that the draft bill won't require communications companies to build weaknesses into their products. They think that the sort of technical capability notice the law requires would in fact amount to a requirement to create weaknesses on the government's demand. Dissatisfied with voluntary moderation, the EU is preparing anti-terror measures that will require social networks to yank radical content within an hour of notification. Twitter confessed recently to having no good ideas on how it might do rumor control, and the European legislators are unlikely to exhibit much American squeamishness about restricting freedom of speech. Russia appears likely to continue to attempt to influence U.S. elections, the Atlantic Council and others warn. U.S. National Security Advisor Bolton says it's not just Russia either. The other three members of the familiar four, China, Iran, and North Korea, are interested in elections too. Techniques vary. Russia favors media amplification of disruptive memes, China seeking influence through think tanks and universities, and Iran and North Korea probably building on past hacking successes. So has data become an attractive nuisance for companies? Sure, there's money to be made there, but they certainly come with their share of headaches. Google's turn-offable but easily overlooked location tracking is one example. It seems poised to draw regulatory attention from the U.S. Congress. And witness Facebook, again in a bit of legal and regulatory hot water, over the powerful data collection and aggregation tools it offers marketers. There's a lawsuit pending against Facebook filed by people who claim that the social media giant's collection and analysis of data has enabled housing discrimination. The U.S. Department of Justice is effectively supporting that suit, having joined Fair Housing Group's attempts to block Facebook's efforts to have the lawsuit dismissed. In a separate but related action, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development has begun the process of lodging a complaint against Facebook for violating the Fair Housing Act by creating advertising tools that facilitate discrimination on the basis of race, gender, zip code, or religion, or whether a potential renter has young children at home or a personal disability. As the Washington Post characterizes the controversy, the moves by HUD and Justice, quote, mark an escalation of federal scrutiny of how Facebook's tools may create illegal forms of discrimination, allegations that also are central to separate lawsuits, regarding the access to credit and employment opportunities, which, like housing, are subject to federal legal protection. 
The federal actions also suggest limits on the reach of a key federal law, the Communications Decency Act, that long has been interpreted as offering technology companies broad immunity against many legal claims related to online content. End quote. Facebook says it's no place for discrimination, that it's aware of HUD's statement of interest, and that it looks forward to working with HUD to address the department's concerns. Yet other opportunities for data collection and monetization continue to arise. Smart cars, for example, know an awful lot about their drivers. Companies perceive gold in them their data, and it seems that this sort of information is about to succeed free services like Google and Facebook, as the Klondike succeeded Sutter's Creek. Newer models, and these are cars on the streets now, not those newfangled Jetson-esque robot cars so much talked about, but they collect a lot. Here's a partial list from the Wall Street Journal of the systems now developing data, odometer, ignition, engine status, engine temperature, RPM, oil level, gear position, coolant temperature, fuel and battery levels, GPS, speed, LIDAR, camera, brake, wheel position, horn, seatbelt, airbag, doors, tire pressure, blinkers, and wipers. The initial uses are thought to be in improving safety, driver experience, and so on. But insurance rate incentives are following closely behind. And of course, there's thought being devoted to delivering in-car advertising. One hopes Detroit and Nagoya, Stuttgart and Milan too, for that matter, watches the experience of Google and Facebook closely. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire.
And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, welcome back. Um, you had an interesting series of tweets recently. You were talking about uh, the debate on coal, um, the importance of having a diverse energy portfolio. But one of the things you dug into was this notion that cyber is often thrown in um, as an excuse for decisions, and sometimes that can throw people off the, the direction where they should be headed. What do we need to know here? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in this case, there was a debate about coal and on nuclear energy, and and I think that those two also should not be lumped together. They're, they're very much different things. Um, but the discussion came out from the Department of Energy to, to talk about the need for diverse energy portfolios, which is a completely fair topic. Um, anytime that you're producing a lot of electricity for any purpose, like you know, the American power grid, you very much want to know that you can draw energy from lots of different sources. And so there's a debate right now on if keeping coal around is useful to the resiliency of the North American power grid. And I think there are pros and cons and lots of discussions going on. I think that the grid is tends to be far more resilient than people make it out to be. But but that's a debate that, that people can have. Um, my only sort of quip into that was when people started throwing in the discussion of cybersecurity. And one of the positions taken by um, various senior officials was, well, we need to keep coal around because uh, what happens if a cyber attack happens? And we need to have the ability to use coal to, to pump energy into the grid because of cyber. Hmm. And, and my perspective on that is simple, where you have to think of the risk to your infrastructure a little bit more holistically and not just flavor the discussion of cyber. It's not. It's not that it's technically inaccurate. It's not that we we don't want to think about cybersecurity, but it's that the answer isn't bound to a cybersecurity-related task. Whether or not we keep coal around really has nothing to do with cybersecurity because there we adapt, we change, we we come up with different methods to do protection and defense, and it and it's kind of just this topic that gets thrown around a lot, especially in D.C. because it perks people's ears up, and nobody wants to vote against or petition against the choice that leaves us less cyber secure. And so it's kind of this hmm. distractionary tactic that I think we need to be very careful to call out and, and move away from. And who are the people who bring it up? Or I mean, is, is it, the, I, I could be cynical here and say, is it the folks who have a vested interest in, in the cyber? Yeah, I, I think it happens by a lot of different parties. And I'm not so willing to say that anybody's being malicious. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I would happily call people out when they are. <laughs> I, feel that, <laughs> yes. I feel that people know me would, would know that I would absolutely like, yeah. burn people to the ground on like, a public <laughs> Forbes article or something. But, but that's not what I'm seeing here. I'm, I'm seeing, you know, various folks on both sides of the discussion uh, sort of positioning, and including the ones that have a vested interest, um, positioning around cybersecurity because they've been reading headlines and talking about cybersecurity. They're, they're concerned about it, especially for the ones that don't necessarily understand it very well or, or aren't as technical, and they're seeing all this discussion of threats, and it's completely natural to say, hey, well, what about cybersecurity? And, but, but that's where we need to get and educate folks and move the community away from the fear, uncertainty, and doubt aspect of this discussion and more of where cyber should be considered or not considered in the discussion. We don't have to be at every boardroom. We don't have to, you know, cybersecurity professionals don't need to be involved in every decision. And if we try to be, it very much waters down our position. We need to be adults in the room to say, hey, this does or does not relate to where we can offer value. Yeah, we can't end up crying wolf. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. You know, it's interesting, as always. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. 
And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.